Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. They took their name from an old folktale about death, rebirth, reciprocity, and transcending time. They were one of the first bands to ever use a 16-track recorder. They took heroic amounts of psychedelic drugs and were the house band for Ken Kesey's legendary acid tests in the mid to late 1960s. They forged arguably the largest, most technologically advanced sound system in history. And by giving their music away for free, one could say they went viral decades before going viral was a thing. I'm talking about a little band from San Francisco that would go on to become a full-on American institution. A band that played thousands of shows over the course of a career spanning nearly 30 years. A band that left behind a vast archive of sound recordings and heady ephemera. A band that basically predicted the future. I'm talking about none other than the Grateful Dead. I'm Brian Anderson, Motherboard Features Editor, and you're listening to Radio Motherboard. So, full disclosure, I was raised by deadheads. My parents followed the dead throughout the Midwest during the 1970s and 80s. Occasionally, my dad worked as a sort of stagehand for the band's local crew. And for a stretch of years, my mom worked for one of the big rock and roll promoters in Chicago, who booked the dead when they came through town. She has a pretty charming anecdote about the time she made chocolate chip cookies for Jerry Garcia. But that's a whole other story. My parents never forced the Grateful Dead on my sister and I. But the music and the spirit of the band were in our lives from day one. In fact, the Grateful Dead were my very first concert in the summer of 1989 at Alpine Valley in Wisconsin. Some of my earliest flashes of memory are from that show. Documentary filmmaker Amir Barlev was going to Dead shows around that very same time. Amir is the director of a new four-hour Grateful Dead documentary called Long Strange Trip which was just released on Amazon Prime. I was introduced to Amir by Motherboard contributor Sam Gustin, whose name you might recognize from his consistently stellar reporting on the FCC, net neutrality, and digital access. Sam also happens to be a pretty serious deadhead. Sam and I recently sat down with Amir at his house in New York City to talk shop and to unpack the ways the dead predicted the future. But we first needed a sense of where Amir's story with The Grateful Dead begins, and how he came to make the definitive documentary on such a singular institution. I let Sam take the lead. When and how did you personally get hip to the dead? And then how did you come to make this epic four-hour documentary about the band? I discovered The Grateful Dead as a teenager in the mid-80s. It was like 84 85, and they became my favorite band. They sort of ruined other bands for me because after, you, after you've been to a Grateful Dead concert, everything is a little bit spinal tap. You know, hello, Cleveland. <laughs> you know, so I fell in love with the band, and then I stopped seeing them in 1990 after Brent died. I had one bad night. I mean, this is maybe too much detail for you, but I had a bad night listening to a tape over and over again of the new lineup. And I realized, I think that something's wrong with the music. And I kept telling myself, dude, stop listening to this tape. <laughs> you're you're going to like not be able to put things back right. 
but I wasn't able to do that. So I didn't see them for a long while. But then after I made my first movie in 2000, I decided that my second movie would be the Grateful Dead documentary that had never been made. I reached out to them. I got somebody's email address, Alan Trist, the guy who used to run Ice Nine. And like, totally to my surprise, he wrote right back. I still have the email. I don't throw away email, so I just found it. I was like, what's the first email correspondence with Alan Trist? I found the exact date, it was 2003. So then started an 11 year <laughs> game of shoots and ladders where I would get real close to making it and then there'd be some kind of regime change at either Rhino or the Grateful Dead Productions or, or a manager change and I'd have to go back to the beginning. And then four years ago, roughly, I started making it. How did Martin Scorsese get involved? He was at that, around that four year ago mark. I started getting ahead of steam going. So this is 11 years into my own process. I, I, I started getting different producers involved and financiers. And um, the last piece of the puzzle was they just didn't trust us, <laughs> you know, and they needed like a celebrity name, basically. Mm -hmm. That's really what happened, frankly. You know, it's like they, they were like, who's this Amir Barlev guy? I'm like, I'm the guy who's been trying to make this for 11 years. Yet still, uh, they needed a godfather. So we brought in Martin Scorsese as a kind of an insurance policy that if I fucked things up, he would step in. And mm -hmm. since I didn't fuck anything up, he never stepped in. Okay. Does Scorsese have a favorite era of Grateful Dead? I don't even think Martin Scorsese likes the Grateful Dead. <laughs> yeah. But he was on board. Yeah, he put his name on it. Were there other music documentaries that you saw? I mean, obviously, Scorsese's film The Last Waltz is probably yeah. the most famous <clears throat> rock and roll documentary in history. There were other documentaries that are more heavily focused on concert performances like Stop Making Sense, yeah. et cetera. Have any influences in the genre, or did you say, I'm going to do something totally new? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't go to the genre for, for inspiration, because it's not such an inspirational genre. Of course, there are exceptions, but there's a lot that I don't like about the genre. I don't like when people you know, use contemporary musicians to kind of give legitimacy, so it'll be like... Here's Adele telling you the first time she heard Casey Jones, you know, so you know that it's vital music. You know, that's the problem. It's like music is such an experiential thing that you have to kind of evoke it in order to get people to understand what is great about the thing you're trying to make a documentary about. So it's like it's closer to like humor or something, you know. You would never make a documentary about humor and just be like, you know, have a bunch of people saying, like, this guy was so funny. Trust us. He was so funny. You have to make people laugh in that kind of a... You'd have mm -hmm. to, you know, and similarly with music, you know, you got to, like, have a musical film that yeah. actually uses... So, like, for instance, in our film, there's a moment where Billy Kreutzman is saying, uh, okay, guys, so this first song we wrote is, is a 4-4 four -four with a 6-4 laid on top of it. And he starts doing it on the kitchen table, like we're sitting here right now. Yeah. And uh, my editor cut the footage in 6-4... You can't see that because you'd have to like use a ruler on the avid timeline of our non-linear <laughs> editing machine. But 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 you can feel it. You can feel that we're cutting the footage like he's talking, and you're and you're you're watching it. And on some level, it's poetic. You know, it's 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 jump cuts. You know that that, yeah. that don't make sense from a conventional, rational point of view. But musically, it does make sense. And that's what we tried to do with the film: is make a musical film. Yeah. And uh, I don't know that many people have done that. And of course, you're talking about the other one, or I guess the full yeah. title of the song is "That's yeah. It" for the other one. Right. So let's sort of broaden the scope yeah. a little bit. Yeah. In terms of what you learned. Yeah. From making the film, because obviously you had been into the dead since the mid '80s, so. I I guess, what did you learn about the Grateful Dead's legacy in American culture and this idea of them being the most American of bands? And, and I guess the sort of third part of that question is, yeah. did the Dead drive the culture or did the culture more drive the band or was right. it sort of mutually reinforcing? Uh, let me come at it from this point of view. We're sitting here in my, in my kitchen and I'm the parent of three kids, ages seven, five, and three, you know. Even though I think of myself as a young guy, I'm a dad now. And one of the things that we're trying to always do is inculcate our kids with values, obviously. And the drug that we're most worried about with our kids are these cell phones that we've brought into the house ourselves, you know, and, mm. and modeled bad behavior around for them. And we tried. We're still kind of trying. We tried to do Shabbat, even though I don't believe in God. But, you know, but like we, we, we tried to like create one day without connectivity, quote-unquote connectivity. <laughs> and my wife 
Jennifer said, it's a gift from those people way back when to now. Like, it wasn't important until now. You know, even way back when, they had this idea, like, put down your plows and have a day off and let's connect with each other. And she's like, yeah, it was, it, it really was like a gift from like thousands of years ago to now. I feel like a lot of what the Grateful Dead were about was a gift from 30 years ago, 40, 50 years ago to now that is only like really vital and really important right now. And a lot of what they were picking up on uh, in terms of how we could live with one another in counter culture to the way other people are living was cool back then, but it's like extremely vital and crucial right now. And I'm talking about, you know, having real encounters with each other, being present, not performing at one another all the time, not striking postures, you know, but actually like trying to have a genuine encounter in the moment. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the stuff I kind of knew already, to your question, a lot of the stuff I sort of knew the Grateful Dead were about that and I loved that about them, but I, I revisit it all now, not because I necessarily learned so much, but because I've changed. I'm a parent now. I'm like a worried parent about what, what my kids are picking up on, you know? So I, I, I'm coming at it now a different way than I did as a teenager. Do you play... Grateful Dead around the house for your kids? Yeah, with my phone. No, but I mean, I mean it's like, yeah. I think there was, I mean, a, there was probably yeah. a, a period of time sure. when, for a, for a parent, the idea of your, you know, 14-year-old or 15-year-old yeah. going to a Grateful Dead show was like your worst nightmare. Right. Yeah, you know? now it's like the best thing that could possibly happen. That's, that says that the culture is terrifying. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I would so much rather my kids be at a dead show than any number of things. The Grateful Dead was, a, was a, is like a cultural lifeline. So it's like you come in for the hedonism and the party, then you get turned on to like the Merry Pranksters. That leads you to Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg. Allen Ginsberg leads you to Walt Whitman on the one hand and Alan Watts on the other hand. Then suddenly you're in Buddhism and then it's Taoism, you know? And it just, you go from there, right? So. There are a lot of big ideas, and the kind of the low-hanging fruit is this hedonistic party, which, you know, everybody likes that, you know. So you come in and then you realize there's bigger ideas at work, you know. This is probably a good opportunity to talk about one of the really key episodes in the film. You know, when you're talking about this idea of living in the moment, there's this episode in the film where the Grateful Dead had just played the Watts acid test, and I guess the date, if I have my dead base cred going was February 1966 and of course the acid tests were these weird parties that the right. Mary Ken Kesey and the Mary Pranksters threw where like everyone came in got dosed and sometimes they played the band played music sometimes they didn't sometimes it was just this like wild freak out and apparently that night the dead really didn't do much playing at all the, uh, right, the yeah. history shows. Yeah, it's a couple notes. Too, yeah. too overwhelming. That, that's the night of uh, Jay, Jay, right? Ray, Ray, right? Well, there. Oh, are something like that. The pig, well, like the pig well there's the the, the Who Cares girl. Right, that's what I'm talking about. Who yeah, cares girl. Who Cares girl. Yeah, that's yeah. that night. Yeah, 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 and, then, yeah, yeah and then and right. then and then Pigpen. Yeah. The only song you can find on archive.org is a six minute thing from Pigpen. It's just Pigpen. Who cares? Rap. He sa- he saved her. He, he, she was bad tripping, and everybody else was too freaky and too psychedelic. And his kind of blues presence—he wasn't—he wasn't high, he wasn't and he, high and that, he yeah. was, and he was like a gentleman. He saw know? her through, and he, yeah. And he saw her through with that rap. And we should say for our audience that Pigpen yeah. is a guy named Ron Pigpen McKernan, right. who was kind of the Grateful Dead's first front guy. It was yeah. Garcia called him what? Our power guy. Our powerhouse. Powerhouse yeah. guy. I mean, he was a guy he'd get people up and dancing and. Yeah. He was sort of a blues guy, but right. yeah, I mean, he was very much like the front man, quote unquote, for the band. But sad story there. Eventually, he at least at least in the late '60s, right. yeah. um, and of course, he didn't take psychedel. He didn't take psychedelics often. He had other vices, uh, yeah. you might say. But so anyway, getting back to this Watts Tower episode, yes. maybe you could sort of tell. So sure. basically, after the Watts acid test, they kind of freaked out that night, and then. There's a scene, episode in your film right. where they show up. Yeah. It's like dawn the next morning, and they show up at the Watts Towers, and something pivotal happens. So yes. maybe you could take it from there yeah, and sort of right. give us, tell us what sure. the Watts Towers are, first of all, yeah. and then tell us what happened to the band, and specifically to Garcia. Great. So the Watts Towers are these 
beautiful monuments that an Italian-American laborer basically built on his own when he'd come home from work every day. And they're sort of the paradigmatic outsider art. And there were these huge, huge four or five story high towers that are still there to this day and they're made from detritus. You know, they're found art. Found art. Seashells. Yeah. And seashells. They're beautiful, you know, yeah. and, and uh, probably a great thing to see while you're tripping after a night of tripping. And the story behind them is that they were illegal. So after this artist died, the city came in with wreckers and cranes to tear them down because they thought they were a danger. But they, he had built them so well that they couldn't be torn down. And so they basically said, okay, let's take the opposite tack and we'll reinforce them a little bit. We'll put them in the tourist pamphlets. They'll be here forever and they'll be a part of the landscape. So the story that Jerry tells, which I have to say it was one of the great revelations. So, you know, you make these films and it's a scavenger hunt, right? You're trying to figure out who these people are that you're making films about. And so you're, you're going through the record and it's like peeling an onion. First, you're sort of like where the mainstream culture understands them, and then you're getting to know them better and better. And this was sort of like the center of the onion for us when Jerry says, he's telling the story, and he says, so there we were, it's the morning after the Watts acid test, and the epiphany I had was, if I succeed as an individual artist, that's my payoff. That's going to be what happens. There'll be something left over after I'm gone that can't be torn down. And he gives this great pregnant pause and he says, I don't want that. I don't want that. I think I'd rather have fun. And right. it's totally not where you think the story's going. You know, you listen to it and everybody has the same reaction we had, which is you think, oh, wow, he's talking about his legacy. He's talking about posterity. He's talking about giving something to the future. He's actually talking about art, you know, or as we understand art. But in fact, he's saying something very different. That's classic Garcia, yeah, too. Yeah. Just like turning it on its head. You're like, fucking with your expectations. He's going one way, and then you're like, oh, yeah, I didn't notice right. that. Yeah, exactly. It's a funny thing also as a documentary filmmaker to hear, or as a journalist, because we're in the business of sending things into the future, right? So you suddenly think, like, whoa, am I doing something he would have hated? <laughs> you know? Yeah. But I think it's more complicated than that. I think it's much more complicated than that. So this struck yeah. me seeing the film as like a pivotal moment yeah. because it's one of the themes of the film, this sort of tension between in the moment versus artist legacy. And I want yeah. to ask you, like at the risk of, you know, Garcia's been dead for what, 22 years now, I think? At the risk of trying to get into his mind 22 years later or trying to put him on the couch. Right. I mean, I, I think it's almost a cliche, like a lot of, Artists or musicians will say, like, hey, man, you know, I just want to live in the moment. Like, I don't care about my legacy, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, but I think that over... I'll take that risk. <laughs> but I yeah. think over time, yeah. over time... Yeah. right. At least as far as I'm concerned, there are sort of glimpses of evidence that maybe he, over time, became more concerned about his legacy. What do you think? Okay, I have a theory about this. <laughs> Again, you know, it's just a theory. But it is armchair psychoanalysis. I don't know, Jerry. I mean, in a certain way, I don't know him. In another way, I think I know him pretty well. Here's what I think, okay? I think the tension between posterity and the now is a, a false a dichotomy, <laughs> okay? And I, I think that actually what Jerry is talking about is something that is a continuum, a continuum of human experience that stretches back in time and stretches forward in time. And I think you can't understand that Watts Towers epiphany without squaring it with two other things that are in the film. And so there's sort of three tent poles in the film. There's the Watts Towers thing where he says, I don't want that, I want to live for the moment. But there's also earlier another epiphany that Jerry talks about where he says, a huge moment for me was seeing Frankenstein, uh, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein as a six-year-old. My father had died the previous year. And it hit me in this archetypical center. And he says, he says, uh, because it was a dead thing brought back to life and it terrified me. And so you're thinking about a kid who's just lost his father and here's a reanimated thing and it terrifies him. So you see that Jerry, I think, is thinking about what is alive and what's dead. Okay. Is a monument like the Watchtowers a living thing or is it a dead thing? Is it a frozen thing? Is, a, is an animated corpse that's been electrocuted alive or is it dead? You know, mm -hmm. and um, the third epiphany, at least the way I understand it, is at the end of the film where Jerry's later in his life, he says something which seems not to square with these earlier two things. He says, I sure hope this outlives us. I hope there's, I hope there's something going on. 
after we're gone. It shouldn't be called the Grateful Dead, Jerry says. And I get the sense he's not even talking about music. Because he says, you know, Jack Kerouac's books made me into the person I am today. I would like there to be something. I'd like to give that to somebody in the future. And so he's talking about, he is talking about art. He's talking about the way literature functions in life, changes people, and then they create something. It doesn't have to be literature. It doesn't even have to be art. It could be the way the Brooklyn Bridge is made. It's the function of human beings making things beautiful for the future. It could be a way of organizing a country, you know what I mean? And that is a thing that's alive. And when it starts to die is when we get frozen and dogmatic around it. And I feel like the Grateful Dead sometimes suffers from that. You know, people like start to wave the flag of the Grateful Dead and be tribalistic about the Grateful Dead. When in fact, if you understand the Grateful Dead, you use it as a kind of an inspiration to create something entirely new. I think, for me anyway, you know? It's like, if you meet Buddha in the road, kill him, you know? Don't get hung up on Jerry Garcia. Be Jerry Garcia yourself in your own time. And so I think Jerry was not, he wasn't like a guy who didn't give a shit about the future. He figured that the best way to give something to the future was to create these nows. And that the nows would inspire us, and they have. They did. They did all of us sitting here, right? And that we would take, in turn, we would, we would do something in the future. It's, it's what Ripple is about. It's what the song Ripple is about. Ripple, yeah. yeah, right? So that, that's like, how do you create the Ripple? And it's about love, you know? That's, that's how you transcend time, right? Yeah, we're that's get, my theory. We're, no, <laughs> okay. this, this is great. We're, get, we're, we're, getting into some, we're getting into some pretty... You said you wanted to talk about time. <laughs> yeah. well, we're getting into some yeah. deep deep themes here but I want to um, it's not what I gave the Wall Street Journal <laughs> well, and, and we're very grateful to you yeah, here right. um, I hope I haven't talked too much no not yeah. at all the space time continuum is way more fascinating yeah. now I do want to I do want to sort of bring us yeah. back down to okay. Earth because there are a couple yeah. sort of more, yeah. more mundane yeah. things here Dennis McNally the Grateful Dead's yeah. longtime publicist yeah. has this lovely line toward the beginning of the film where he talks about Robert Hunter yeah. who was Garcia's lyricist yeah creating a non-literal hyper-Americana, yes. which I love, Fucking that great. idea. Yeah. Everything yeah. I know about geography, I learned from the Grateful Dead, like American geography. <laughs> That's great, man. Yeah. I feel sorry for your uh, I mean, mate when you're trying to I mean, catching the great, the great northern out yeah. of Cheyenne, like, oh, yeah. all, all these oh, yeah. towns. That's and, such a great way of putting it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything I learned about geography, I learned from the Grateful Dead, too. Honestly, yeah. like everything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is it's that... It's romance, you know? It is. It's the romance of it, it all, is. you know? It really is. Well, it's so true. The thing is that for anyone who has gotten into this music yeah. at, almost at all, when you hear him say non-literal hyper-American, you know exactly yeah. what he's talking yeah. about. But I... But for those of us who may not be as yeah, into it right. as we are, maybe you could talk about what he was getting at there. And also, it, that ties into this idea of the sort of what I call yeah. the sort of dusty Bakersfield rock yeah. vibe, right, right. you know, with these songs yeah. like um, Jack Straw and Me and My Uncle. And there's a lot of archetypes involved there, yeah. the idea of the cowboy, the outlaw. So maybe you could talk about yeah. your idea, My of, idea of, it. Of, it, of this. Well, I mean, borrowing heavily from, from one of the people in the film, Steve Silberman, you know, the Grateful Dead lyrics were written both by Robert Hunter and the other lyricist, uh, John Perry Barlow, by dipping into the deep well of, of, of kind of American mythic uh, archetypes. Americana. Yeah, right. So it wasn't um, like, it wasn't like a slavish imitation to an old form. It was using these using these images, whether it's a gambler or outlaws or you know a murder murder ballad images, to tell stories that were extraordinarily ambiguous. So you weren't quite sure what the story was. It wasn't like a straightforward story, but the ambiguity kind of allowed you into the story and became like Shakespeare in a sense where. Wherever you are in your life, you know, you can call upon a Shakespeare quote <laughs> to make the point you're trying to make and to also connect whatever's going on in your moment there with this continuum of human experience. You know, ah, this is, it was always this way, you know. Uh, and so you felt connected to people who lived hundreds of years ago or whatever. You felt connected to this. And, and the thing is, you weren't connecting to good people all the time. The Grateful Dead music 
often seemed to be about sort of moral quandaries where you weren't sure if you trusted the narrator. He was maybe a bad person, a murderer of some kind, you know. And so it made you think about your own choices on some level. It was about sort of ethical quandaries, at least for me. I don't know, you know. Do you agree? Well, I'm laughing because that when you talk like that, it reminds me of sort of one of the most famous Hunter lines from, of course, Terrapin, where he says the storyteller has no choice. You know, soon you will not hear his voice. His job is to shed light, not to master. So that gets to the sort of ambiguity of it, right? Ambiguity and open-endedness and also not completeness. It was always avoiding having a concrete prescriptive message. And that is so important, right? You know, like so much of what we're given by people we admire is this promise of certitude where the band was saying, no, we're like you. We're seekers also. Like, again, in Ripple, they say, uh, if I knew the way, I would take you home. You know, um, we're on the same path as you, but we don't have any answers. You know, that's like a key thing. And that, uh, by the way, is like I said, when you get into the Merry Pranksters and Ginsburg and Taoism and stuff, you find that they're all saying the same thing. And so it empowers you to feel like, okay, good. I'm part of this continuum of human life of seekers, you know? And it also builds empathy because it's less about right and wrong and more about, uh, well, no, sir, I'm sorry, let me correct myself. It's certainly about right and wrong, but not where you would normally draw these definitions. You're provoked to feel empathy for people who are maybe about to make huge mistakes in the old west or something like that you know and of course and of yeah. course the end of yeah. the end of the terrapin suite is yeah. a classic example yeah. of ambiguity where the lady leapt at him and then it's completely open ended you don't it's up to you to decide yeah. If, yeah. if the yeah. if the hero made the right choices yeah it's brilliantly written lyrics they connect you with with a continuum of American experience. Well, yeah. let's talk talk about because you made a good point here. That yeah. sort of is a good segue where you talk about they didn't they weren't trying to be prescriptive. Yeah, and so this gets to a topic that I want to hit on briefly, which is that Garcia and the band really tried to avoid wading overtly into politics in yeah. contrast to a lot of their contemporaries and their peers, right. especially in the late 60s with the you know Vietnam War going yeah. on and Nixon and Watergate. I mean, you had you know Neil Young singing about Kent State. You had right. Joan Baez and, you know... Yeah, it's a really good point. Protest yeah. genre. So why do you think they yeah. were so leery about wading into politics, especially because you can envision another band who said, holy shit, like we have this mm. essentially captive audience exactly. of people who will listen yeah, to us. right. And yeah. yet they chose not to, to go down that path. Why do you this think is a great was? question, Rand. I mean, okay, the answer lies in this John Perry Barlow line that's in the movie. I'll give you a little preamble. So there's a moment where we're talking about the Grateful Dead, cult, deadhead culture. And Steve Silberman, one of our deadheads, says it functioned in the same way as a religion. It had the, you know, and I'm trying to express his hesitation at using the word religion because obviously that comes with all these connotations of dogma and uh, priesthood, you know, rules. And and then John Perry Barlow says there was definitely something religious going on there. He says there was a holy thing that was happening there, but it wasn't coming from Garcia. It wasn't coming from the stage. It never does. And we realized we had to be really very careful because if the Grateful Dead was going to form a religion... Besides just having a religious-like thing that was following it around, it would constrain our ability to get into the future properly. Yeah, I love that. It's a great line, and it's really dense. He says, you know, if the Grateful Dead became a religion, it would constrain our ability to get into the future properly. So what's he talking about, right? He's not saying we were abdicating the idea of inculcating values. He's saying, actually, we had a bigger quarry in mind, which is to get into the future properly with our values intact. And if we stoop to the level of having a set of rules and prescriptions and, and a message, a topical message, then those messages would eventually get dated, right? I mean, I'm Jewish, right? So like half the things I'm told, like, you know, well, don't eat milk and meat and stuff like that. It's 5,000 year old ideas. And I'm trying, I'm trying so hard to like figure out how that applies to now. Whereas if you, if you say to somebody, if you try to inculcate some values that are perennial, right, that are like, 
will be values 500 years from now about thinking for yourself, about empathy, then maybe you can, you can transcend time a little bit. You can get into the future properly without it becoming a dogma because the history of humanity, right, are, is people coming along and saying like, hey, everybody, we can be free, we can love each other. And then next thing you know, like, we're going to kill each other right. for that guy. You know, it's like Jerry and Hunter, to my mind, were trying to not participate in that thing where a mystical thing becomes an institutional religion and suddenly people are killing each other. And the next thing you have, it's the Inquisition. Yeah. So that's why they had this healthy mistrust. And it's great to mention the Inquisition because the Grand Inquisitor uh, in the Brothers Karamazov is the paradigmatic case of Jesus coming back and they say, oh, sorry, our Christianity is too important to let you meddle with it at this point, right? And I think they were all very conscious of that. And that's why Jerry was so goddamn terrified of his own charisma. You know, he didn't want to, he, because he, because he understand that people have a hard time trying to become Jerry Garcia themselves, right? They want a leader, you know, yeah. and they want, they, they want to get behind a flag. And the whole idea of the Grateful Dead was not to create that kind of a tribe. That's sort of aversion to authority or any sort of strict framework to live in sort of begets all these decentralized communities that and economies that pop up as the dead roll along and that can be you know they they the, the bands seem to always have this like path of least resistance they didn't want to be cops so it's like when the record label approached them like oh, these people are taking right. your shows like they're you were losing money and they were like ah, we don't want to be like police and it's just easier to let them be so of course this brings up this like proto like viral marketing like a taper community yeah it exists to this day that sort of thinking just sort of it it brings about this decentralization and like sort of foreshadows like an online culture where people can share things without the middleman and of course the irony about the taping culture was that the record label was freaking out that they were going to lose all this money, but right. allowing people to tape was probably, the, I mean, you tell me, was probably one of the single best commercial decisions they ever made in terms of growing their audience, right? It's crucial, though, to, 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 to tell the story, because when you look on CNBC or whatever, people say, like, the Grateful Dead were the best businessmen around, but they were the worst businessmen, you know, and they understood that transactions are kind of a necessary evil, like taking a shit, you know, like... You don't make a god out of going to the bathroom. It's a thing that you do kind of on the sidelines of life, and then you get back to living, you know? And, like, you know, transactions that we have with each other, it's like, okay, yeah, you have to do that, right? You know? But that wasn't the thing that was going on. And and, and I think over time, it's become this notion that, you know, the Grateful Dead were these, like, brilliant strategists or something, you know, when, in fact, they were just keeping that principle alive, which is, like, the principle of empathy and of love and, you know, like, let's figure out how to make the business aspect feed that and not the other fucking way around. Well, this is, this, is a cru- uh, yeah. this is a crucial point yeah. because, you know, like you say, you watch CNBC, you'd think that these guys were some, like, business geniuses. Right. And the, and of course, that's the, self-serving, right? Well, one of the yeah. things that your, yeah. movie, like, that your movie makes so clear yeah. is that this was not some, like, savvy business decision to let people taping. I think at one point Bob Weir just says, like, we just... You know, there's almost like a aversion a to conflict. They were like, we just don't want to do this. Like, we don't, we don't want to crack down on our audience. Yeah. We're like, you know, right. and then, of course, Garcia has this great line, which is that, you know, after I'm done with it, you know, they can go and do yeah. whatever we want. It's, so it's out there, yeah. In hindsight, yeah. it ends up... Sure, because we all want that. We want to be part of... We want to be trusted. Like, we want to be respected by the people... We're going to see a concert with, you know, or whatever. I mean, when you trust your audience the way the dead trusted their audience, it's reciprocated. You know how few people actually, like, sold those bootlegs? It's like you can trust people, you know? You know, nowadays, it's really hard to, to, to create that kind of a relationship with your audience because it's so mediated by these phones and all this other stuff. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You've been listening to an extended chat with Amir Barlev, the director of a new four-hour Grateful Dead documentary called Long Strange Trip. I'm Brian Anderson, Motherboard Features Editor. To bring you up to speed, Motherboard contributor Sam Gustin and I have been talking with Amir about the dead as not just a band, but a mode of living, a mode of thinking. Capturing that essence can be something of a white whale for a filmmaker who doesn't want to make just another music film. In other words, only a deadhead like Amir would make a four-hour documentary. And seeing as the Grateful Dead were futurists as much as anything, well, things get very, very heady. You were raised by deadheads. I mean, I mean. Yeah, so, I was. Talk about that, because as a parent, I yeah. start to wonder about how much authoritarianism to bring into the dynamic, you know. Whereas, I'm, I'm just curious. Like, do you feel that you were given too long of a leash, or do you think that Grateful Dead values were a positive thing in your household? Yeah, absolutely. At the same time, like growing up, my parents never sat me down. They were never like, you're going to listen to this and you're going to like it. It was just like a thing that was there. And over time, it just sort of like left an impression on me. And it sort of informs my worldview like to this day. And just, I mean, just for some quick background, like I'm from Chicago. Both of my uh, parents were hippies in the late 60s and through the 70s. And they both, throughout the Midwest, they were following the band. And my dad sort of fell into doing like um, stagehand, I wouldn't necessarily call it roadie work, but you know, he would carry out the rugs that the band would play on and he would help string up their amps and just you know, do, some, do some grunt work with kind of the local crew. And my mother was more so on like the administrative booking side of things. So by no means were they like inner circle dead roadies and family, but I think they got like close enough to get like a touch of the magic that sort of really rubbed off on my sister and I. And, you know, it's still something that's very, very important to me. And yeah, I definitely think like some of the values that the dead sort of held to. And even as it became more of like a machine, they sort of dug their feet in and were like, we're not going to be like police, Jerry Garcia isn't going to do interviews. What sort of kept that momentum going, I definitely like subscribe to, be that real one-on-one connections are always more valuable than talking through a phone, if we're talking about these days. You know, if you appreciate art, you should support the artist. So like if, if you hear a band that you enjoy or you read an interview with an artist or a writer whose work you might uh, enjoy, you know, buy the book or go to the show because that's where the magic is going to happen. And with the dead, it's so interesting because they left behind like arguably one of the like most meticulously archived bodies of work. There's an entire archive that you see Santa Cruz just dedicated to Grateful Dead ephemera. For and now, I think, for now, well, for it's, now, it's yeah, danger, yeah, actually. yeah, I know, yeah. I know, that's but a whole other story. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, yeah. I think like it's it's so interesting that a band that was just all about like the now and having fun and not being cops and not treating Jerry Garcia like a god would leave behind this, leave behind yeah. a Watts Tower that's going to yeah. stand the test of time. But it is different, man. I do think it, yeah. it is different. You know, I mean, I think I think that those things. I don't think they've left. I mean, it's it, it's only going to be a Watts Tower. If it gets fossilized and frozen by people, sure, the music isn't a Watts Tower because, and that's why I said there's sort of three different Jerry epiphanies, you know, right. in, in the film that you have to square with one another or maybe triangle with one another. But uh, you know, the, the, the final one, he says, "I do hope that there's something that continues, Pat, you know, after we're gone." But he's not talking about like, "I hope this keeps happening." That would be. A Watts Towers version, right? In order for the Grateful Dead to continue, the Grateful Dead has to die and be reborn in some new form. That's the Grateful Dead. Yeah, and that's what art is, though, actually. That is the ripple of art, actually. You know, art, whatever art does for us as human beings, if it continues, you know, if it continues strongly, 
that's the monument that Jerry's actually looking for. The wheel yeah. is turning. Yeah, the wheel is turning. So if you think about the Grateful Dead, there, yeah. were, there were several different communities. There was the band, which was a community. Right. And there was the extended family, which right. was the roadies and yeah. the employees and their right. family members. And stuff. Yeah. So that was another community. Then there yeah. was the deadhead culture or the deadheads as a community. Any community needs yeah. to have some sorts of organizing principles, unless yeah. you're talking about all out hunter I mean, even in yeah, hunter-gatherer yeah. society, right. there are some organizing principles. Right. And we tend to, when we talk about these organizing principles, we're talking about this is kind of what politics is. So yeah. I'm curious from your point of view, if there's any discernible right. kind of organizing principle going on in this community. Like, obviously, there was a strong anti-authoritarian bent that they didn't want people to tell them what to do, whether yes. it was the record label or the cops. It's clearly a libertarian strain here right. because yeah. you know it's like people can do what should be allowed to do what they want just as long as they don't hurt others yeah and then there's this idea of sort of collectivism or communitarianism yeah. because garcia was clearly concerned with taking care of the broader family certainly yeah from a business and almost um putting food on the table vibe yeah. that went into the 80s and of course yeah. he was concerned about the audience perhaps most famously in the you know take a step back like don't yeah. crush your your fellow man against yeah. the, you know. So I was wondering yeah. how you kind of reconcile these different I, strains. Yeah. I think, I've, look, I, I can just speak for myself, and it's important to do that. Like, I, you know, I, I almost cringe when you say the deadhead community, the band community. These are fractured groups of people with right. lots of different perspectives, and it's important to note that the band wasn't a community for a, for a long while, and the, the deadheads were different. There was, we were we were all jostling up against each other. It wasn't a melting pot. I mean, you know, there was people who experienced shows in dead silence, taping them. And there were people who that seemed crazy to. I remember when I got into the band via tapes and stuff like that. So I remember I had a second mentor who said to me once, Hey man, if you're thinking about the set list, you're not at the show. You know, and I was like, what? You're like, okay, okay. <laughs> I, I mean, the set list is all the whole way I get into this thing, you know? So everybody had a different Grateful Dead. And my, but for my Grateful Dead, for my Grateful Dead, it's about, it's a sort of a psychedelic existentialism, right? I mean, I think the operating principle here is about trying to be egoless, which is really hard for people to do, right? It's a lifelong process of trying to wean oneself of dependence on an ego, right? So I think a crucial thing to understand is that the Grateful Dead were the house band for the Merry Pranksters. And the Merry Pranksters, you know, you could easily, you could, I think you could correctly say they started the hippies and the start of the 60s. If you think about this pyramid of culture that starts with these acid tests, the motto of the Merry Pranksters was not, let's all be one, I'm okay, you're okay, it's all good. <laughs> the motto of the motherfucking Merry Pranksters was, never trust a prankster. That's the, thing, that's the ethos that started all of this, right? And what does that mean? It means, be here now, <laughs> you know? I, I'm gonna, don't, don't put me on a pedestal. I'm not gonna put you on a pedestal. Let's have an encounter with each other, okay? And don't take anything for granted. Don't decide because we're dressed the same that suddenly we're in some tribe together and you can count on me for this or that. Like, let's start anew in each moment with each other, right? So it's, it, was, it was trying to undercut from the beginning our inclination towards creating these tribes and starting to, you know, he's the leader and, uh, oh, we wear the same kind of clothing and, oh, we're, a, you know, this is the flag and these are the rules. Yeah. Never trust a prankster. So it's like, trust but verify, you know, like, it, 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 the, there, was always, there was always a notion, and this you find in Zen too, right? This notion that, like, when you start to rely on this sort of rule book of engagement with people, you're on the road towards war. Basically, well, you know, I should say, uh, at, yeah. At that point, I, I should say yeah. I'm, I'm probably betraying my bias and predisposition as a political science major, wanting yeah. to stick labels on stuff and yeah. say this is this type of politics and yeah. this type of politics and that type of politics. Which clearly, it's a little more complex and and nuanced here. Clearly, sort of toward the end, something started to, for lack of a better term, go wrong. And perhaps as best exemplified by the sort of debacle that was Highgate in 1994, which is just a show that sort of 
um, Highgate. Sort of just. <laughs> I haven't already called that. Well, I mean, that's what it is. Highgate. Highgate. You know? Yeah, in, uh, in 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 Vermont. Oh, that's the name. With the show, that was oh. the venue. Oh, oh. You know, okay. you know, basically, oh, I thought you're talking about. Um, oh, sorry. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. So, so it was this yeah, yeah, show okay. where basically yeah. the dead, had, you know, people on the outside, you know, this didn't yeah. have tickets, uh. stormed the fences, yeah. violence, chaos. That's not Deer Creek. You're talking about? Well, I think it also it happened a couple times. Yeah, a couple yeah, times, yeah. Cops showed up, yeah. nasty. It happened in Deer yeah. Creek. I mean, Highgate was another. It's so funny because when you said Highgate, I thought you were talking about Deer Creek. And you know how people say like Watergate? They 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 take yeah, the term. Everything Watergate, is a gate. Everything's yeah, yeah. gate. So I just thought, I, oh wow, that's funny. Highgate. 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 <laughs> it was the time that the high people fucked up. Right. Well, whether it was yeah, whether right. it was high, high, yeah. I mean, this happened at, right. at, a, at, a, at a number of shows. Whether yeah. it was Highgate or Deer okay, Creek, clearly it prompted the band to issue this kind of extraordinary statement yeah saying right look guys if you keep doing this we're not going to be able to tour anymore yeah and so i guess clearly there was something falling apart so was that yeah because on the one side of uh, of the spectrum is the cop but on the other side of the spectrum is the fucking freeloader the only way this thing works is if everybody takes responsibility for each action, that encounter we were just talking about, right? So, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna like th- th- gate crash and you're gonna like throw things at cops and you're gonna think that you you're entitled to a free concert, you're completely fucking the whole ecosystem up, yeah, like, <laughs> right? Uh, and yeah. and all of these attempts at free communities have always been weighted down on one side by authoritarianism, uh, you know. Uh, and on the other side by freeloaders, you know, like and people who, you know, think it's all good and anything goes, man, anything doesn't go, you know, it's like yeah. we have to, you know, you have to think about how your actions function in the community. That's what like existentialism is all about, right? You know, it's like there's no rule book, there's no God, but what there is is everything you do, you have to multiply by a thousand to see like, how it works in the world. And the gate crashers didn't read their Sartre. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> final, final question just to kind of yeah. circle back and put a bow on this whole thing. Yes. Um, if you, you know, obviously the Grateful Dead 50th anniversary was what I guess it was two years two summers ago two summers ago yeah. and they played these unbelievable shows yeah um, they played some in California and then they yeah. played these shows at Soldier Field yeah. which in, is Ch- a- in Chicago where actually Jerry played his last show of course in ninety five uh, my the, folks were there in ninety five Garcia's last show and then they sort of there's a yeah. symmetry where they came out and of course Soldier Field is giant football yeah. stadium where that was like right. what like eighty thousand people yeah. you yeah. know yeah. There? tens of thousands. I mean, I I think we were all. You were probably. Were you there? Yeah, yeah. You were there. So I was actually happened to be elsewhere, but I was you know watching the live stream, and there were clearly a lot of like um, nostalgia trips going on, where like older people who had yeah. seen. The, but there was also like thousands and thousands and thousands of younger people who had never seen. It was amazing. The band live. Yeah. So I guess the final question is, what explains the Grateful Dead's enduring popularity now? especially with a whole new generation of kids who never even saw the band. I think we've talked about it. It's uh-huh. that all these ideas uh, that the Grateful Dead were about are perennial. And it's, it's explained by the fact that young people seek out authentic experience. And the culture isn't giving it to them. And concerts are big showbiz extravaganzas where, you know, they, they know that the stage patter was said in the town before, you know, hello, Cleveland. Young people are always going to seek out a fair shake of a concert and want to feel like they're not being performed at. And the Grateful Dead are the exemplars of that and will always be, yet there should be and will be more people doing stuff like that in the future. So in a way, the Grateful Dead can never die because... They weren't dependent on any one person or people. And the Grateful Dead is an idea. And, the, and that idea is as vital as ever. For myself, yeah. being raised by deadheads, their work pushing the limits of acoustic purity and live amplification uh, is really what hooked me initially. And the dead, speaking of being, you know, not the most business savvy folks, I mean... Who would try and and eventually build arguably the biggest sound system ever created? And that would eventually plunge the band into like, you know, 
on, onto the brink of like financial collapse. <laughs> um, yeah. But of course, the sound system has become uh, come to be known as the wall of sound, not to be confused with Phil Spector's approach to recording music, right. but this was an actual like living, breathing sound system. At the height of it, it contained something like 500 amps, stood like, well, Phil Lesh's bass stack was 32 feet tall. Can you speak about the segment you have in the, in the film? It's yeah. great when it touches on the wall. And you even have like some great archival clips of like Owsley Stanley like pushing around some amps in the early days. What did you, what did you take away from putting that segment together? I, it, it's part and parcel of the Grateful Dead's commitment to connecting with their audience. That was what it was all about, was not having smoke bombs and, you know, uh, dancers and, you know, whatever else on stage, but rather letting the audience experience people making music. And, of course, the sound quality has to be as great as possible. And, you know, as they started playing bigger and bigger shows, they were more and more concerned with the fact that the people in the back weren't getting the same experience they were having on stage. So they bankrupted themselves, literally, building the most preposterous sound system the world had ever seen. It was so big that it took two crews to leapfrog from one show to the next. They'd have to set it up and then take it down. It took so long to take down the scaffolding that that, that person would have to skip, that, that part of the crew would have to skip uh, a show and go to the next crew. So they doubled the size of their crew. Plus, everybody had to stay up all night doing this. So everybody got completely addicted to Coke. Probably not the only reason they got addicted to Coke, but it certainly fed into it. Yeah. And the Grateful Dead didn't give a shit. They were happy having this unbelievable sound system, which could be heard clearly from three miles away. Yeah, just and it basically nasty. almost killed them. They drove themselves into the ground and uh, eventually disbanded. Yeah, took a hiatus. Uh, at the end yeah. Of it, yeah, What fascinates me is talking about like the enduring popularity of the Grateful Dead. If we're talking about what they did, pushing the envelope of acoustics, certain things that we take for granted today, going to like a larger venue where there's line arrays, so literally just like you know amplifiers stacked up uh, one on top of another, forming a column. That's like standard amplification setup at a concert venue yeah. at like you know, wh wherever um yeah wherever you see a concert nowadays you owe something to the to the wall of sound you really did that into owsley stanley who developed it and other guys on their crew but they were they were instrumental as we like to say here at motherboard the future is wonderful the future is terrifying. The question is, what do we want that future to look like? And how are we going to get there? Maybe we can all afford to be grateful ghosts in our time. Even if you know nothing about the Grateful Dead, even if you don't care for the dead, even if you hate the dead, it's worth checking out Amir's doc, Long Strange Trip, for that message to the future alone. It's nothing short of a triumph. I'm Brian Anderson. And this has been Radio Motherboard. I will see you on the other side. Mm -hmm.